But each Sunday, our liturgy that we work through, that we worship through together at Gospel Life Church, is intended to be a retelling of the gospel, a retelling of gospel graces. And each element of that liturgy is structured in such a way, it appears where it does in such a way, so as to remind us of the gospel, okay? And that includes, obviously, in a real sense, the preaching. Here we proclaim God's word with the desire to repeat the gospel, echo the gospel, declare the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which is at the heart of the scriptures. Sometimes, though, we come to texts and we think, where is the gospel in this? Where is the good news to be found in this? And I think in Revelation, this can often be a struggle. There's a lot to get through this morning. And just let me say, a lot of what I study, a lot of what I write into my first draft of my manuscript ends up hitting the cutting room floor, and I, we just don't have time, right? A lot of those are in the periphery. We try to center in on the central theme. Let me just say, a lot has hit the cutting room floor for this morning's text, but there's a lot here, so be patient with me. I know I tend to fly through things pretty quickly. I know I can sometimes get in the habit of talking a little fast. I'm going to try to slow down, but I, I really ask for your patience because we, we really do need to commit to study uh, in this text everything that's here for us that might be helpful for us in actually being able to see and discern the good news of Christ, which is here, which is central, which is evident, which is apparent. And I, and I, I do want us to see that. So let's just ask for prayer as we begin. God, there are many of us here this morning who are hurting, many who are seeking. There are those who are here, they're not sure what they believe about you. There are those who are here who've believed as long as they can remember. We all need the gospel, and in the midst of our hurts, in the midst of our pains, in the midst of our shortcomings and failures, as we approach a text that's really difficult, it's hard, hard truths, hard things to hear, just pray that you'd give us a word of hope in the midst of what can seem overwhelming. And so we just pray that your spirit would do this, that you'd be active in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Long before Charles Dickens penned his 1859 historical novel, A Tale of Two Cities, set in London and Paris before and during the French Revolution, another author would write his own tale of two cities. Almost 200 years earlier, in fact, the English Puritan preacher John Bunyan would pen a Pilgrim's, The Pilgrim's Progress, which would tell the tale of young Christian, a character named Christian, as he made his way between two cities city of destruction, and the celestial city. So the whole story is bookended by these cities, the city of destruction where the story begins, celestial city where the story ends. And these two cities really drive the book. They're contrasted throughout the book because everything that desires in the story to shipwreck Christian's faith, everything trying to cause him to renounce his newfound identity as a citizen of the celestial city, Everything that desires to sideline him from the fight, everything that desires to see him fail to persevere, flows out of the city of destruction that's just constantly trying to pull him back in. And everything else, including the very cross that saves him and relieves him of the burden that's on his back, finds its ultimate completion and hope in the celestial city. It's a, this, the celestial city for Christian in the book 
is a future hope that motivates him to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission, to quote from our EFCA statement of faith. And so the story begins, so if you're not familiar with the Pilgrim's Progress, it begins with Christian, his character Christian, living in the city of destruction. It's an allegory of the Christian life, right? So he's living in, in the city of destruction. He's living in a place of wickedness. Living in the midst of wickedness. He's living in the midst of a place that's deserving of judgment. And, and somehow, and we're not told exactly how, but he finds a book in his hands that he reads that brings conviction to bear in his life. It tells some true things about who he is in the city in which he lives. But he doesn't understand everything. All he knows is that it kind of stirs conviction. And then right from the beginning comes my favorite character in the whole book. Turns up more than once to help Christian. His name is Evangelist. An evangelist helps him understand the book that he's reading that was troubling him because it spoke, tr spoke of the true condition of the city in which he lives. It speaks of the true condition of Christian's heart. And he knew, he knew it. He knew it was true when he read it. He knew there was an aspect of this that was true as he was reading the words. And so evangelist takes out a, a parchment and he unrolls it so that Christian can read the words, flee from the wrath to come. And Christian asks the right question. He says, which way should I run? <laughs> like Christian's response to this is just, tell me which way to run. Because there are a lot of ways you could run. There are a lot of directions you could go to in an attempt to flee this destruction. But which way will actually save me is his question. And so Evangelist points him to a narrow gate. A narrow gate in the distant horizon that actually joins to a broad field that leads to the city of destruction. But here they find, he, he finds a narrow gate. So he runs to the gate. And people from the city of destruction try to persuade him to stop because of the perceived foolishness, perceived on their part, of his actions. But Christian merely, he responds to this by putting his fingers in his ears and running, crying out as he runs, life, life, eternal life. Eventually he's stopped by a man named Obstinate, who's heard what Christian is doing, and he says, what? And leave our friends? And comforts behind us? Obstinate asks Christian, what are you looking for? And Christian responds, I'm looking for an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. It is kept safe there to be given at the appointed time to those who diligently seek it. You can read about it in my book. And Obstinate says, nonsense, away with your book. And so Christian flees the city of destruction. At the cross, he becomes a citizen of the new city, and while he is a true citizen of that new city, he hasn't fully arrived there yet. He's a stranger. He's an alien. As the old city still tries to pull him back to destruction. So long before Dickens writes, we find Bunyan's tale of two cities. And yet long before John Bunyan writes, about 1600 years to be precise, the Apostle John writes his own tale of two cities in Revelation chapter 17 from which Bunyan, again, throughout the book of Revelation, would uh, use a lot of that imagery as he writes the Pilgrim's Progress. And in Revelation 17, here's what's happening. John now circles back again to look at, at history from another angle. So if you remember from, from chapter 16, the bold judgments, the final judgments are finally poured out. And essentially what we read about is the seventh bowl is poured out as the final judgment. 
Okay, so you might say, well, what's left to talk about in terms of history? This was the end of history, and it was, but as we see throughout Revelation, we see something of, of a retelling of an event that the authors already told us. So, I mean, I, I would argue that the sixth trumpet, the seventh seal, the seventh bull, all recount the same event, which is the end. And then he keeps circling back to tell us more about how that builds and builds and builds until the end. He keeps circling back to help us see and understand the same realities from a different vantage point. And as he circles back this time, he helps us see, once again, the contrast that he's already set up between the people of God and the people of Satan. Between, if you remember, the imagery he's used before, those who have the mark of the beast and those who are marked by God. And his point is that everyone has a mark. Right? Again, apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation, as an expression of apocalyptic literature, is very black and white. There's not a lot of writing defense. You either have the mark or you don't. And the idea isn't that a certain subset of Christians or a certain subset of non-Christians in the end will be marked or sealed. Right? It's not saying that, like, okay, this sliver of human history's population will receive a mark of the beast. Everyone either has the seal of God, the mark of God on their foreheads, or the mark of the beast. It's a symbol for whose wrath would you rather face, whose acceptance would you rather have. And so we've talked about that a lot up to this point. And, and now he wants to draw the same contrast, but by contrasting two cities. That's essentially the purpose of Revelation 17. But rather than seeing one big contrast, we actually see several ways in which the city of man and the city of God... According to Augustine, right, he uses that language, the city of man, city of God, contrast with one another. The city of man being the city of the world, the, cult, the surrounding culture, and the city of God, the kingdom of God, its norms and distinct, distinctives, right? And so the idea of this contrast between the city of man and the city of God is to challenge believers to persevere, right? That's what John's trying to do throughout Revelation. He's saying, look, keep going, keep moving forward, keep pressing forward in your faith. Keep persevering. But the way he's challenging us to persevere here is to do so by way of reminder that to set your mind on the things of earth is to dwell in the temporary. It's to dwell on something that's very short-lived. Right? But now, uh, all, we, we must see that all the perceived pleasures of the temporary are just that. They're just perceived. That both in the present and in the future... Actually, they make matters far worse. It's kind of like watching a drug addict in which everybody watching from the outside can see the obvious harm. But the person who's addicted, they can't... Deep down, they know something's wrong, but they can't see themselves living any other way. This is the idea. This is, this is the destruction, the city of destruction that keeps us from true goodness and peace. And so you have set before you here in the text... City of destruction, city of God, that's the intended contrast, and it's contrasted in the text in four different ways. Okay, first we'll see the identity of each city. What city is this? What do they represent? Okay. Second, we'll see the description of each city. How are they described? And more than that, where do they give their allegiance? As, as they're described, where do we see each city giving their ultimate allegiance? On, on what identity do they stand? Third, the future of each city. What is the final outcome? And then finally, the citizens of each city. Who populates them? Okay, so the identity, the description, the future, and the citizens. All right? First, let's look, if you're taking notes, the identity of, the, of each city. 
starting in verse, verses 1 through 3. So this is our outline. The identity of each city, verses 1 through 3. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, very important, keep that in mind, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Okay, here we see John pointing us to two cities, the city of Babylon and the city of the New Jerusalem. All right? Here are the two cities upon which now he focuses his attention. He focuses something of a contrast. The city of Babylon and the New Jerusalem. So John introduces us here to a character he calls the great prostitute. In verse 1, we're going to talk about what that means in the next section. But she's seated on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. The earth dwellers, and every time we see that again in Revelation, what are we talking about? The earth dwellers are those who are non-believers, who are marked with the beast, who have set themselves up against God as his enemy, who will not receive him, who do not want to be in his presence for all eternity. They've become drunk with her wine. Okay? And so John's carried away into a wilderness here um, by the Spirit, and he sees her sitting on the same beast that we actually unpacked together in chapter 13. I'll have more to say on that in a minute. But what's meant by this here? And like, how from this do we see the city of Babylon and, and uh, the New Jerusalem introduced and contrasted? Okay, well, let me, before we get into that, this is really important. I thought about cutting this out, but bear with me. I think this will help us. I think we need to say a word about how symbolism functions in the scriptures. All right? How does symbolism function? Even more than that, how does it function in apocalyptic literature as we read it, right? Because we're not usually as familiar with this. And that might help answer actually some of the questions that I've received in recent weeks during the Q&A as well. So asking how symbolism functions in Revelation is important when we come to chapters like 17, right? So if you're here and you're a skeptic and, and you're like, why... How on earth does someone read Revelation? And why is it important for everyday life? Or if you're here, you're a younger believer, or you've been a believer your whole life and you're still wrestling through, like what do these symbols mean, right? All of us do. It's important to ask that question here because here we see a prostitute riding on a beast with seven heads and ten horns and the prostitute's drunk on blood. All right, so hang on. Nobody reading Revelation thinks that's meant to be taken literally. All right, so whether you're a futurist who sees exclusively a warning in the text about coming events in the future, or like me, you tend to be a preterist, you see this more referring to first century events as a type of things that continue now and that certainly will continue to happen. Regardless of, of which position you have, none of them take this literally. In other words, everyone acknowledges symbolism. The question then that we have to ask is, how does symbolism function? in this kind of literature, in the genre of apocalyptic. And we get part of that answer as we look across the book of Revelation. This is a good time to do it. We're in 17, right? So we've had a lot behind us, and we actually have a lot ahead of us. And so this is why it's a good time to just say, time out, you know, do the old Zach Morris, freeze everything, and explain a little bit about symbolism here before we get going. Because, listen, um, chapter 1 of Revelation, we see the vision of this son of man. Okay, remember this? 
Vision of Jesus, the risen Christ, the Son of Man. And in this vision, what, what happens? John hears a voice, and, and then as he often does, he turns to look who is speaking. So this happened throughout Revelation, right? Like he hears of, of a lion, he turns and looks and sees a lamb. He hears the 144,000, he turns and looks to see who it is. It's, it's the great multitude. He hears in Revelation 1 who's speaking, he turns and looks. It's Jesus, right? He turns to look to see the voice that's speaking. John now sees one who what? Well, he's standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands, clothed with a long white robe, a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head are white like wool, like snow. His eyes are a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. His voice is like the roar of many waters. He holds seven stars in his hand. A two-edged sword comes out of his mouth, and his face burns like the, shines like the sun in full strength. Right Now, as we discussed, quite obviously, the purpose of these symbols is not to give us a crudely literal vision of what we can expect in the future when we meet the risen Christ. It's not like, well, yeah, John speaks in these terms because he literally means that his face will be like the sun, his feet will be like burnished bronze. So this is giving us like a, a sketch of what we'll see when in the future we meet the risen Christ. No, each of these things don't represent a particular part of his resurrection body in a literal sense. Instead, each of these images, some of which are historical Old Testament images, each of these images represent aspects of Jesus, aspects of the risen Christ. He's in the midst of the church. Those are the lampstands. He's the one with priestly authority, the white robe, golden sash around his chest. He, he has wisdom and respect and authority associated with old age, white, white hair, and yet he has fierce intensity and strength associated with youth, burning gaze, right? His gaze is all-knowing. He shares all things in common with the ancient of days because he's God himself entered into human history. And we could go on, but each of these things represents a different aspect of Jesus, right? In the same way, then, we get to the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. So we're given all kinds of symbolic imagery. But instead of, a, I think, I would argue, instead of a crudely symbolic uh, a crudely literal, I should say, expression of a single event in the future, each of these symbols represents an aspect of God's judgment, both in the past and present and future, a coming ultimate judgment against humanity. So images like the four horsemen represent military conquest, civil unrest, famine, death, and disease across the span of human history between the advents, past, in the present, and then in an ultimate sense yet to come in the future. And many of these images, just like Old Testament imagery, they're borrowed from historical narrative, like the plagues. And we see this throughout the New Testament, right? Especially with the Exodus. So at the Exodus, what happens? God commands that a lamb would be slain and that the blood of the lamb would be put across the doorpost, as we talked about last week. That those who come under the lamb would be saved, right? Okay? But while that was God's command in history, that actually happened. That lamb actually served as a type of the one who is to come. It's a type of Christ. So when Christ comes, you don't take his blood and literally put it on a doorpost in some crudely literal way. This is now a symbolic image, a type of what would come. In fact, the word mystery that's in our text now, that's in Revelation 1, this is exactly what it means. It, it mean, and we'll talk about it, but it means that which was hidden, which is now revealed. All right, that which was hidden in some sense in the past, but now it's revealed. In the past it was hidden. How was it hidden? Well, in, in ways like this, through typology. There's a lamb, blood on the doorpost. Jesus says to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you still don't know these things? So he's saying, look, it's present, it's there. And there's a reason why in Luke 27, 
Jesus takes the this disciple, or in Luke 24, Jesus looks back with the uh, Cleopas and his companion and says, look at all of the ways in which the Old Testament speaks to me. In John chapter 5, he does the exact same thing with the Pharisees. And so as a type of the one who is to come, it signals forward. And in the same way here, we see that happening. At, at Exodus, God commanded all of these things, but while that was God's command in history, it comes to now reveal something else, right, to his people. Um, the historical judgments against the Egyptians rescuing God's people become symbols of God's judgment against those who stand against the Lamb. Okay, do you see? Each one represents a different aspect of God's judgment. And so then when we come to texts like these, okay, come to texts like Re- Revelation 17. Thanks for bearing with me. In which we're introduced to characters like the great prostitute or this beast upon which he rides. Here, here, here's what we're doing. We're watching John as he, being steeped in Old Testament history and theology, uses, imagery, uses that imagery, imagery that a first century context would have been absolutely aware of, first century Jewish context, would have been more than aware of in order to describe again the contrasts and the themes that he's trying to set up and help us understand, right? And we're going to say more about this, but throughout Hebrew literature, Babylon, the, the rejection of Christ, the world order is represented by a harlot. In fact, in verse 5, John says this again of who he has in mind. It says, On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abomination. So this, this woman is the city of Babylon. The last verse of the chapter also says that she represents a city. She's Babylon. The question becomes, who does Babylon represent for first century readers? Who does Babylon represent for us as we read now? We'll get to that in a minute, but surely we see here the central symbol or image for mankind's rejection of God and all that's tied up with it. Right? Man, uh, Babylon became that symbol in the Old Testament of that which rejected God, which stood against God, which claimed might and strength from within itself and that caved in on its own wickedness. And we see that all that symbolism tied uh, to this chapter here, and I would argue that in these first three verses, here's what we find. All of that is now contrasted with the new Jerusalem, with those who would receive rather than reject Jesus Christ. So where do we see new Jerusalem in verses one through three? Well, look who it is. I said we'd come back, but look who it is that shows John this vision in verse one, right? Set your eyes there with me. Here we have one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls poured out, that angel is the one who now shows him this vision when they circle back to human history from another vantage point to see it from another angle. Why is that important? Well, it's important because that's, that angel in particular who shows John this prostitute is going to show up again in chapter 21. There John is introduced to the new Jerusalem. So he shows, them, shows John Babylon here in, in uh, 17. And then... In chapter 21, a few chapters later, same angel comes back, shows them the new Jerusalem, starts this way. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, I'm going to complete that in a minute, but, but the point is you have the same angel described in the same terms who introduced John to Babylon in 17, introducing him to the new Jerusalem in 21. Here we have the idea that the city of man and the city of God 
are contrasted. They're placed side by side. That's what the rest of the chapter is now about. But how is each one described specifically? Like, who are they? Where do they give their ultimate allegiance? Upon whose identity does each one stand? And that's where we turn our attention now from the identity of each city to the description of each city. So just look with me at verses 4 through 6 while keeping verses 1 through 3 in mind. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. This is imagery to say she's beautiful, she's attractive. There's a lot of elements here that would speak of attraction, including the golden cup, which would say she's drinking something wonderful and pleasant, right? The golden cup, a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So who are these cities? Well, one is the city of the prostitute, others the, city, the other one's the city of the bride. We see here side by side the city of the prostitute and the city of the bride. As we already looked at, the first one is described in terms of a prostitute. What's meant by that imagery? Well, as we've seen in weeks past, the idea isn't that we have some future character that is to come who will engage in literal sexual infidelity, but rather we have a repre- or, or who will lead others into literal sexual infidelity, but rather we have a representation of one who, whose cultural influence leads the nations astray by way of spiritual infidelity, rejecting their true bridegroom for fornication with just about everything else. De-godding God, putting themselves and other things on the throne. For more of this imagery, I just go back and listen. I mean, especially if you've missed. It's hard in Revelation when you miss because we're building on things that we've talked about before. But go back and listen because we, we talk about this quite a bit. We've covered it a lot. But now the text says here that the woman is seated on many waters. Once again, the many waters in question certainly represents what? Waters, chaos, and evil. We've talked a lot about that too associated with the sea. So remember the beast comes out of the sea. But, but that imagery goes a bit further here in chapter 17. Look at verse 15 with me. You're going to skip down a bit. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And so we're going to come back to this, but the idea is that the wickedness or chaos here in particular are those on the earth who are led astray by the prostitute into infidelity and wickedness. He still maintains the idea of chaos or evil, evil, but it specifies the evil. It's sinful humanity upon which this woman prays. She prays on sinful humanity. The one this woman identifies with is the beast. If you remember, this beast is the beast who's attempting to ape God, to uh, replace God, to set himself up as God, but who's also a false God that leads people into further chaos and evil and destruction rather than their own good. Now, as it relates to the identity of this beast, again, just please go back and listen to chapter 13. It's going to be hard to really fully understand 17 without chapter 13, but here we see very clearly even more evidence of what I was arguing in that chapter, which is to say, here we have Antichrist. The same beast that Satan called out of the sea, he continues to call out throughout human history from the sea, from the chaos, from the evil, just like the beast from 13, we see here seven heads, ten horns, unmistakably 
The same beast, it's a picture of how Satan wreaks havoc on the people of God throughout human history, carrying on his shoulders the great prostitute who's said to be drunk, and as John gets closer to her, now he realizes, okay, she's drunk, but she's not drunk on wine. Like, that's not wine she has in her cup. That's not wine that's running down the sides of her face. It's blood. It's the blood of the saints. That's to say, so great is Babylon's hatred for Christ that as his people are slain by the beast, as they face the beast's wrath, the culture of the city finds great delight in that. She's drunk with pleasure as she watches the beast and even joins him in his persecution of those who are marked with God's mark. She mocks, she laughs, she derides, she joins him. It's a, it's a hard picture, it's a stark picture, but in the first century world, it's one that would have had an apparent meaning. It's one that those who are reading are very familiar with. You know, uh, the city of Babylon is the city of Rome in the first century. It's what it comes to represent. We'll see firsthand here in just a moment what I think is probably pretty close to indisputable imagery to that fact in verse 9. And I'll make my case for it in a minute. So I think we have Rome in view here, pretty clearly the city of Rome. Those who are in the first century persecuting Christians. Right? So you have the empire of Rome, the beast, the city of Rome, which is the culture of the time, the culture of the city. Having said that, the Babylon described here is more than Rome. It's more than Rome. It doesn't end there, and we'll see reasons for that as well. It really does seem to represent the world order's response to God in every single age. Mankind's rejection of Christ, the pleasure that the surrounding world takes, and the persecution of believers all over the world, and that's happening right now, guys, in areas of the world. This is the city of the prostitute. But as John continued in chapter 1, when the same angel introduces John to the New Jerusalem, listen to this language. I'll reread that verse that I shared and continue reading. Okay, listen. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Okay, listen. Do you see the intentional contrast? Even as John continues to teach about the bride. Listen, listen, listen. Okay. Come, I will show you the great prostitute riding on the beast, drunk on the blood of the saints, leading the world into infidelity against God. Come, I will show you the bride. Not the prostitute, the bride. The wife of the lamb, not riding on the beast. Feasting at the marriage supper of the lamb. That's where she drinks her wine, not the blood of the saints. Faithful to the lamb forever, not in infidelity. Do you see the distinction? John is saying, don't forfeit the latter for the sake of the former just because you think there's some kind of temporary pleasure being held out to you now. And we'll get to, to that in a little bit. So here we have the city of the prostitute, city of the bride contrasted. And that's going to continue for the next couple of chapters. That's the description of each city. But that leads us now to the final outcome. Starting in verse 6. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not 
and is to come. Okay, so let's stop there briefly. Here we see Antichrist, the beast upon which this woman sits, ultimately going to his own destruction, as we'll see, bringing the woman with him. So it's pretty clear that the end game for this beast and for the woman who rides him is destruction. That's really the main focus here. It's a city of destruction. Babylon is a city of destruction. But it's important to again circle back to our last point and understand who is this beast? Who is this woman who is headed to their destruction? So John sees this vision, woman riding on this beast. She's drunk upon, uh, she's drunk, but, but upon closer examination, it's not wine, it's blood, right? For understandable reasons, John marvels. He's astonished, right? If you're, if you're watching this vision unfold, you're going to marvel, you're going to be astonished, and in ways that potentially makes your stomach curdle. And the angel asks him, why are you marveling? So the angels throughout apocalyptic literature, especially here in Revelation, angels are always explaining things, right? So here we see the angel explaining again. He says, I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. So whenever we see the mystery of the woman and the beast, what John doesn't mean in Revelation, when we see this word, the mystery of, what John doesn't mean is some kind of secret code to decipher. It's really important. That's actually... Never what mystery means throughout the New Testament. It never means that. Ever. Um, uh, and, and so, as we look at this, we saw this early on in Revelation chapter 1, when John spoke about the mystery of the seven stars, right? When we see this term used throughout the New Testament, especially in John's writings, rather than meaning mystery to be, to be figured out, as I said at the front end, it means that which was hidden, but has now been revealed, it's now been made plain, it's now been expressed more plainly. Or more to the point here, that which was hidden but has been revealed in the gospel of Christ. So, so listen, the mystery of the gospel, as we see throughout the New Testament, is not that the gospel is so mysterious that we can't actually really ever figure it out. Who knows what the gospel is? Each person has to kind of express what the gospel is for themselves. It's so mysterious. Paul even calls it a mystery. No, that kind of meaning of the text would be to read our current 21st century understanding of the word mystery into a first century context. It's not what it means. Instead, it's talking about that which wasn't known in the past, but now has been clearly revealed. How has it been clearly revealed in Jesus? How is it hidden? Like we talked about, a type of Christ. It's not something that we still have to try to figure out. So what's been revealed to us about this woman and the beast? Well, look at verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go on to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So Babylon is a type. Hidden in ages past as this, as this historical story, historical narrative of Babylon, but that was pointing to something future, the world's rejection of Christ. So this term we see in verse 8, bottomless pit, is actually the same meaning as the abyss that the, that the beast rises from in chapter 13. And here it's said that the beast was and is not and is to come. What does that remind you of? The way that Jesus, a twisted version of the way Jesus describes himself. Remember, this beast is aping God. He's trying to imitate God. He's trying to stand in his place. Really, all deceivers that are trying to sideline God's people from God are trying to do that in some sense. And Jesus throughout Revelation is, is described as the one who is 
and who was and who is to come. And here we see the beast is the one who was and who was not and who is to come. What's meant by that? Well, I don't think, as some interpreters might tell us, that this means the beast is exclusively future, that it's not the Roman Empire. Because look, it says that he is not. So as John's writing this, he's saying the beast isn't here now, the beast is yet to come. I don't think that's what we're talking about. I think rather this is a different way of John expressing what he's already told us. I think it becomes a little bit clearer in this next uh, verse, because listen, it's a restatement of what we saw in 13, when the beast receives, do you remember what happens in 13? The beast receives a fatal wound, the world celebrates, only to have this beast reappear and rear his ugly head again in human history. It's not speaking of a future event in which there's this coming person who, you know, maybe an assassination is made, attempt is made on his life or whatever, and everybody thinks he's dead, but that, then actually he rises from the dead, and so you know it's the Antichrist. It's not what this is saying. It's not talking about that. It's saying throughout human history, we think he's gone, and he comes back. If you remember from chapter 13, we defied, defined Antichrist this way. So in his lectures, which are enormously helpful to me, D.A. Carson says this. He says, the power of Satan expresses itself in Antichrists, plural, in concrete historical opposition to God's people. Do you remember this? The power of Satan, the way in which Satan attacks God's people, right? The power of Satan expresses itself in Antichrists, plural, in concrete historical opposition to God's people. So throughout human history, this beast that we see here in Revelation 17, it rears its ugly head, it leads people astray, carrying the prostitute, the city of man, as they stand against God's people, pour out their wrath, as the city of man mocks the city of God, and throughout human history, their empire inevitably implodes and collapses on itself, usually because the evil that it possesses can't stand for very long, simply because of the sheer human depravity that's evidence in that evil, right? It can't bear the weight of it, so it's an inevitable collapse. The Fuhrer's empire collapses. Stalin's regime fails. Nero's reign ends, right? They can talk about a thousand-year Reich all they want, but they're going to get like 20 years because that kind of evil can't sustain itself. It's just going to implode. It's going to eat itself alive. And so it does, and the people rejoice. It's gone, and we try to get back to life as normal, but then... It keeps rearing its ugly head again in some other form throughout human history and people eventually realize that it will just keep coming back largely again because of the extent of human depravity. That's what we see here. Remember, in chapter 13, what happens? The people marvel. Why? Because the beast receives a fatal wound and then comes back. Now read this verse. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Same way of expressing the same thing. The reason I, I, I think this can't be exclusively future is, I mean, look at verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Look, listen, here we see seven heads, seven mountains. Again, I think I said this the first week we read through Revelation, and I was saying there are just some images in uh, Revelation as apocalyptic literature that everyone in the first century world would have been immediately familiar with. Seven mountains, guys, is one of them. And when I say everyone, I'm not just talking about Jewish people. I'm not talking about people with an Old Testament background. I'm talking about the world. Like um, Roman historians, Roman authors, Roman poets would uh, consistently talk about Rome as being the place of seven mountains, as being founded upon seven mountains. And so everyone 
would have immediately pivoted to Rome and the Roman Empire, the seven hills or mountains of Rome. But these seven heads also, it says, stand for seven kings, it says in verse 10. Multiple interpretations. I'm not totally sure which one's the right one. I'm really not. There's a lot, like I said in Revelation, where I get to it and I'm like, a lot of possible interpretations. A lot of them seem pretty plausible. Some people say the seven kings are seven emperors of Rome because we're clearly talking about Rome. But then the question is like, where do you start? Augustus, you know, and then where do you stop counting? So that, that seems pretty arbitrary to me. Some say seven kingdoms uh, going back in history. But again, the, the question is, where do you start? Egypt? You know, do you start with Assyria? Do you start with Babylon? Like, where do you start and how are we counting kingdoms? So again, it seems pretty arbitrary. Here's what I'll say about it. I think that it would have been more, for our purposes, really, that's not the point that we're trying to decipher. Um, I think it would have been more apparent for a first century audience than it is for us. I think it had a more apparent first century meaning. Maybe not, maybe not. But I think, remember, if if, if our hermeneutics... If the way that we approach interpretively the book of Revelation is that that a 21st century audience knows more than a 1st century audience about the text, we have it backwards, right? Our goal as we read through the scriptures is to see what the original author is saying to the original audience, who would have understood the context, who would have understood the genre, who would have understood a lot of what's being said in its own historical context way better than we would 2,100 years later, 2,000 years later, right? So we're so far removed that, again, the way we approach every other book of the Bible is to say, of course, the first century context understood this better than we do, and our our job is to go back and understand the historical context. So if we're reading Revelation and it's like 21st century would understand this better, again, we've got that backwards. We've got to kind of pivot back. But if I was to have to take a position here, I would lean towards saying the seven kings symbolically represents all the kings who make up the entirety of the Roman Empire. Again, seven is a number... That means completion, perfection. Um, it's, the, it's the best I can do. The ten horns are also ten kings, it says. I take these to most likely, as I've said before, be the Seleucid kings that uh, used in Daniel, talked about in Daniel, who lead all the way through until the little horn comes, the tenth horn. Antiochus Epiphanes comes on the scene, right? The Maccabean Wars. Antiochus Epiphanes comes on the scene, and he has a reign of terror for how long? 1260 days or 42 months. Three and a half years, time, times, half a time. I think it's exactly what we're pivoting back to. And it all seems to me to bring to mind for the first century audience, Jewish audience, a historical moment of Antiochus Epiphanes mercilessly persecuting the people of God. And to say, okay, Antiochus died and the people of God rejoiced. It's still actually a part of even, even like secular Jewish culture still celebrates the victory of the Maccabean War, right? So it's like Antiochus died, the people celebrate, and yet, I mean, it seemed to to have a fatal wound, and yet he returned in Rome. He was, was not, then was to come again. And he always comes to his own destruction, the Roman Empire that stands against God by way of an imperial cult that persecutes all those who don't worship or allow worship of the emperor. That's going to end in destruction. Like the culture of the day that people shift to and start saying, well, the word of God is so backwards, it's so bigoted, it's so against the values of the culture, so against the values of the things that we really like to hear and talk about, it's so offensive, that will pretty clearly end in destruction. This is for us right now to understand because they've set themselves up against God as his enemy. They make war against him. 
that in the end the Lamb will conquer. It is the city of destruction, yes, but it's contrasted with the city of victory. The new Jerusalem will be the city of victory, the city in which the conquering king reigns forever. Conquering why? That he might save a new people, create a new and perfect humanity forever. You receive the city of destruction, city of victory, side by side, and that brings us finally now to the citizens of each city. Who is this new humanity? So starting in verse 14, they will make war on the lamb, the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords, king of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. Are, are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, burn her up with fire. That's the kind of imagery that you would expect for judgment against the city to be burned with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled and the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So just very briefly, because we're going to say more about this in the weeks ahead. I'm not going to say a lot here. Here's what this means. Those who are drawn by the world, right? Those who are, are drawn by the surrounding culture to deconstruct, to embrace a view of the world that's more, a view of maybe their scriptures that's more in line with the world, to reject the historic teachings of Christ. Those who are drawn by the world will always think that the world is on their side. Always. Like, they'll always think that the world is for their good. You know? They'll always appear wise in their own eyes. They'll they'll look and they'll say, see how with it we are? You know? See how much we get it? See how much those Bible-toting Christians don't get it? This seems so obviously wise in comparison to those things. They'll think the world is for their good. They'll think the world is really behind them and supporting them. And in the end, what does it do? It eats them alive, as we've already seen throughout Revelation. Like, they serve that which destroys them. It eats them alive. In fact, it actually hates them. The beast actually hates the culture. He hates the city that's seated on his back. He burns with rage against it, drunk and abused by the beast. It will now ultimately see that siding with the beast was not so wise, though the residents of that city will still not want to be in the presence of Christ. It's not for their good, right? Gospel of Church exists to root all of life in the good news of Jesus for his glory and the city's good because the gospel brings good to the city the prostitute hates the city hates the the people that populate the city hates the surrounding culture and wants to tear it down and burn it all and god is the one who sovereignly saves his people in the midst of that hatred he's sovereign over all of it and yet look at the the residents of the new jerusalem again in verse 14 those with the Lamb, are called and chosen and faithful. So here we see the city of the hated, hated by the beast, hated by Satan, hated by the very one that they're serving, that they desire to serve, and the city of the chosen, the called, the faithful, the loved by God. In the end, those who persevere will be called 
faithful. And those who are faithful, even when the world is not, even when faith, faithlessness seems to increasingly characterize even churches in the West, and believers all around them are deconstructing their faith, walking away, rejecting the, the scriptures, saying that they know better. Did God really say, you will surely not die? Rejecting the tenets of the scriptures, rejecting orthodox, historic Christian doctrine. Those who are faithful in the midst of that will be those who are citizens of the New Jerusalem. The question is, how is it possible? The text tells us, how is it possible to be so faithful and to persevere so well? Like, is it through your own strength? You know, is it because you, you did so well? You tried so hard? No, it's not in our strength. Right? Look at the language. It's those who are called and chosen who are faithful. What comes first? It's the called and the chosen. The way in which we were able to persevere in our faith is because God loved us. He called us. He chose us. You know, after Revelation, we'll be preaching through the book of Ephesians. The key verse to all of Ephesians, as we'll talk about in chapter 1, is this. He, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He chose us in Him, that we should persevere. He chose us in Him, that we should remain strong in our faith. He chose us in Him, that we would have the capacity to remain strong, even in the midst of a world that's faithless, that we could be faithful. It's His action of loving us that enables us to love Him. The sovereign grace that Jesus demonstrated on the cross made the way for us to know God, that we might, by His strength, be faithful, even when the whole world is not. And so we preach the cross weekly here at the table. If you're a believer, I invite you to come forward and receive these elements which represent for us the body of Christ broken for us, the blood spilled. And in these elements, we have grace. Why? Because here, as we do this together, we proclaim the good news that saves us. So if you're a believer, this meal is for you. If you're here and you're a skeptic, you're a non-believer, you're not sure what you believe about Christ, Please participate by way of observing and asking questions. We have a Q&A after the service. I would love to have your questions related to the Lord's table. But please come forward and receive um, a cup and the bread.